This is Africa Digest. Nineteen hundred hours Central African time. Very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomile Lezondi and we are on frequency 15235 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on channel 902 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. In studio with me is Anne Mosa. She has your news. Joala Netulo has your economic news. And Mosibudi Makura has your sports. Let's take a look at your top stories. Gunmen face off with troops in Burundi. Migrants and refugees fleeing to Europe come under the spotlight following the Paris attacks. In economics, Ivory Coast records a consumer price inflation of 2.5% year-on-year in September. And in sports, Athletics Kenya Vice President David Okeo being investigated for misappropriation of funds. Here's Anne Musa with your news. A very good evening to you. I'm Anne Musa. At least six people have been killed and several others wounded in the latest violence in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, a week after the launch of a crackdown search for weapons. Burundi descended into violence in April after President Pierre Nkurunziza launched a bid for a third consecutive term in office. At least 240 people have been killed and more than 200,000 have fled the country since the opposition took to the streets to protest the incumbent's refusal to give up power. The United Nations says all sides in Libya's conflict are committing breaches of international law that may amount to war crimes, including abductions, torture and the killing of civilians. Islamic State forces have gained and consolidated control over swaths of territory. Libyan armed groups pledging allegiance to the group control areas of central Libya, including Sirte, Harawa and Noflia, and have claimed responsibility for a number of attacks, including an oil field, checkpoints and petrol stations. The Kenyan government and the African Union are preparing to face off for civil society during an Assembly of State Parties meeting set for The Hague on Wednesday. Kenya, with the backing of the African Union, is pushing to have an independent audit of the International Criminal Court's prosecutor's system of identifying witnesses. They also want the court not to apply Article 68 in the case against Deputy President William Ruto. Civil society organizations, however, say they want all rules of the court to apply equally to all accused persons. Ruto faces charges of crimes against humanity for his alleged role in the 2007 post-election violence. Sarah Kimani reports. Kenya is sending a delegation of members of parliament and legal advisors to The Hague this week where they hope to lobby other countries to challenge the decision by judges to use recanted evidence in the Ruto and Sun case. Kenyans and members of the civil society term the move a waste of public resources. Civil society wants the court to rely on recanted evidence, arguing that some of the witnesses may have been intimidated to silence or to change their version of the story. The Assembly of State Parties meeting runs from Wednesday this week to Tuesday next week. Calls for stringent laws to curb the influx of migrants into Europe have been dismissed by most G20 leaders. The refugee crisis is stopping the agenda of the G20 summit. 
The weekend's Paris terror attacks have revived debates on whether Europe should take a hard line on migrants. President of the International Trade Union Confederation, Sharon Barrow, has called on G20 leaders to increase funding for refugees. But when people are fleeing in numbers, then Syria alone can't carry the burden, or Jordan alone can't carry the burden, or uh, Lebanon alone can't carry the burden. We need governments to first of all accept responsibility for taking a share of the refugees. We need uh, wealthy countries to provide assistance for the social protection in countries like Turkey with two million plus refugees. And we need refugees to have the right to work, equal treatment, so labour markets are kept secure. Belgian authorities have charged two people who were arrested after the Paris attacks with involvement in terrorism. Police say the pair have been charged with terrorism. Five others detained at the weekend were freed without charge. Gunmen and suicide bombers launched a series of attacks on Friday at several locations in Paris, killing 132 people. In what seems to be another breakthrough, Dutch police have arrested two people after a massive operation close to the Belgian border. German authorities have arrested an Algerian asylum seeker. And finally, a group of highly skilled hackers known as Anonymous say they are preparing to unleash waves of cyber attacks on ISIS following the massacre in Paris. An anonymous member has issued the threat in a video posted online. Anonymous is an international network of activist computer hackers which has claimed responsibility for many cyber attacks. That's the news. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 19.06 Central African time. Thank you very much, and Musa, for that news update. Now, at least four people, including one policeman, were killed. Several others injured in shootings that occurred in several parts of the capital of Burundi, Puchumbura, last night. The residence of the mayor of Puchumbura was also attacked by unknown gunmen without causing victims. Bernard Bankukira is in Puchumbura. This is heavy gunfire exchange that occurred yesterday night between unknown gunmen and security forces in the southern neighborhood of Mosaga, one of the areas that strongly opposed the third term of President Pierre Nkurunziza. According to witnesses there, a police post was attacked, killing one policeman and injuring five others. Other grenade explosions were reported in that area today. One exploded in the morning, while another one detonated around 11 o'clock as government delegation led by the second vice president was about to pay a visit in the area, a visit which was cancelled following this insecurity. Violence was also reported in Buiza in an art club known as Escotis, which was attacked by unknown gunmen around 11 p.m., killing four people on the spot. They shot at Road 5. They came along Road 5, firing and firing. We heard a lot of gunshots. We couldn't go outside because there was a lot of shooting. We were at that bar. We heard them progressing, shouting and shouting. We can't say they were chasing someone. Abruptly heard gunshots. Those who were able to run escaped. Those who could not just light down. They came shooting. We don't know who they were looking for. The incident in that area followed another grenade attack Saturday night which cost life to one person. The residence of the mayor of Bujumbura was also attacked by unknown gunmen yesterday night.
No one was killed or injured, but several things, including a vehicle, doors, walls, and house equipment, were damaged. Also today, two grenades exploded, followed by gunfire in the northern neighborhood of Kamenge, which is believed to be one of the strongholds of the ruling party and which remained peaceful as others were in trouble. According to official reports, three policemen sustained injuries. Several people were subsequently arrested in the neighboring Agara in a police operation that ensued to track down the perpetrators. Security remained tight in several parts of the capital especially in the area of Musaga, with a big number of police and military personnel deployed there. Also in Kamenge, the traffic remained blocked for several hours at the area commonly known as Gare du Nord as a result of the grenade explosions. These incidents in the capital Bujumbura occurred after almost a peaceful week following a massive police operation that was launched to retrieve weapons in the wrong hands, whereby authorities stated to have withdrawn most of illegal arms. Residents in the capital Bujumbura live in fear of a possible escalation into violence in the country, despite security forces to assert controlling the situation. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. The Kenyan government and the African Union are preparing to face off with the civil society during the Assembly of States Parties meeting set for The Hague on Wednesday this week. Kenya, with the backing of the African Union, is pushing to have an independent audit of the International Criminal Court's persecutor system of identifying witnesses. They also want the court not to apply Article 68 on recounted evidence in the case against Deputy President William Ruto. Civil society organizations, however, say they want all rules of the court to apply equally to all accused persons. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto faces charges of crimes against humanity for his alleged role in the 2007 post-election violence in which 1,300 people were killed and thousands were displaced. Also facing similar charges as radio journalist Joshua Sang, Sarah Kimani reports. Kenya is sending a delegation of members of parliament and legal advisors to The Hague this week where they hope to lobby other countries to challenge the decision by judges to use recanted evidence in the Ruto and Sun case. Kenyans and members of the civil society term the move a waste of public resources. I, I say that uh, it is not very wise for the government to spend this old money and yet there are some other necessities in the country that the country is facing. Now we are only focusing on one person. Justice for one person, but there's also this other side. If Ruto is innocent, let him be cleared and let Hague not use politics or anything. Let them just pursue justice, but let it be served and appear to be served to the people who are displaced and to the people who lost their lives. I think that would be great. They should be forced to go and give evidence. In case they, they lied, the court should prosecute them so that no people should do such a, such a chokes with the course of law. Civil society wants the court to rely on recanted evidence, arguing that some of the witnesses may have been intimidated to silence or to change their version of the story. The Assembly of State Parties meeting runs from Wednesday this week to Tuesday next week. That is Sarah Kimani reporting from Nairobi in Kenya. In its report released to coincide with the recent G20 meeting in Turkey, Transparency International, TI, has highlighted how G20 countries, including South Africa, have failed to honor their undertaking to fight corruption through implementing more transparent business practices that would make it difficult for the corrupt to hide or move money across borders. This includes enacting legislation to require the disclosure of the beneficial owners of companies and trusts. According to Transparency International report, which reviews progress against 
against the beneficial ownership transparency principles adopted by the G20 in November 2014. Only the United Kingdom is actively working to curb these unlawful financial flows, scoring the highest of all member states. More from David Lewis. He is the Executive Director of Corruption Watch, the South African NGO and local chapter of Transparency International. Well, the background to this is that at the last G20 meeting uh, last year in Australia, the G20 countries, which include South Africa, committed themselves to a range of actions designed to curb corruption, the most important of which was to have countries legislate in favor of the disclosure of the beneficial ownership of companies and trusts And the finding ahead of the current G20 meeting is that not much progress has been made in that direction. Some progress has been made, and some countries started off better than others did, but but insufficient progress has been made. Now, Corruption Watch um, compiled the South African component of the report. What were the main findings Mm -hmm. um, from their side? Well, South Africa has a, has a mixed record in this regard, and as you, you will see from the report, we fall into the range of uh, countries somewhere in the middle. We've done something, and uh, our system is okay in certain regards, but it can be drastically improved in others. We're very good, for example, on the disclosure of the beneficiaries of trusts, something that we had already enshrined in our legislation. We're very, very poor on the disclosure of the beneficial ownership of companies and complex opaque company structures are a favorite way of hiding the proceeds of corruption and of facilitating their transfer across national borders and so this is an area that we really have to do something very urgently about and i'm pleased to say that there are some signs that we are beginning to do something about it but we need to move very urgently on this now you've alluded to the fact that um, there are definitely um, some um, headway that has been made in terms of efforts to try and do something about it but in your view really um, in terms of fast tracking that process what needs to be done um, to really close these existing loopholes well there is presently legislation under consideration in Parliament, in fact, that would make disclosure of beneficial ownership compulsory, although that disclosure would not be public and we would want it to be public. Now, we're proposing as a fast-track process that in the first instance government require, and this wouldn't require any legislation, government require that all firms bidding for public contracts be required to disclose their beneficial ownership in order to qualify for that public contract. And this, we think, would be instituted without uh, new legislation, and it would not only reveal cross-border flows of funding, potentially, but it would also get us much closer to being able to deal with the really vexed question of public servants doing business with the state. So we really want to see that done as a sign of good faith and it's a sign that governments are committed to the sometimes lengthy process of introducing new legislation. David Lewis is the Executive Director of Corruption Watch, the South African NGO and local chapter of Transparency International. He was on the line with Zekwana Miso.
across the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa For Channel Africa I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague Reporting for Channel Africa I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance with Miss Pomela Lezondi. On Twitter, you can find us on Channel Africa 1, that is Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. Migrants and refugees fleeing to Europe have come under the spotlight following the Paris attacks, where a Syrian passport was discovered near one of the assailants' bodies. Invigorating the European debates on whether to take a harder line on migrants, there are now calls yet again for nations from the bloc to be wary of the wave of people fleeing war and poverty in Africa and the Middle East. With the continent facing its biggest migrant migration crisis since World War II, the European Union states that have bickered for months on how to stem the flow and share the new arrivals. More from the spokesperson of International Organization for Migration, Itai Vereri. Uh, first of all, uh, the tragic scene in Paris at the weekend, uh, I mean, our sympathies are with uh, the families of the victims and those who are injured in this. But also, this is the time, I think, to be showing solidarity with uh, the city of Paris and the country of uh, France at large. The first thing really to say is that um, as Quite a lot of uh, European leaders have been saying, including Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany, uh, the issue of terrorism should not really be mixed up with the current migration forces that we're seeing now. For example, we have seen over 800,000 people come into Europe, and the, I suppose the likelihood that there will be some people who may be ill will towards, towards the country, you know, it cannot be discounted. The reality, though, is that most terrorists that come in or try to attack this are already homegrown. So they are not people coming from outside, but they are people who are already within the European Union. Whether or not this is pushed back, it does not seem like the people will stop attempts to reach uh, Europe. What's likely to happen in the next few weeks? Well, the conditions that they are fleeing from are still there. So we're talking of people fleeing from Syria. And right now we know that the kind of uh, coalition that is going into Syria, including the Russians, long-standing the, the U.S., uh, now France, uh, mean that there are likely to be more people fleeing, more people trying to get to safety, get out of the country. So I don't see that that um, stopping the influx into Europe. What we, we will see, though, unfortunately, is that maybe the welcome uh, that has largely been there, uh, I have to say, so far, may disappear, and that will be very, very worrying, considering that, basically, to put it uh, as many people did at the weekend, the people that are fleeing to Europe are fleeing exactly what we saw in Paris at the weekend. Now, as the IOM, what are the efforts that you're doing to make sure that uh, people are getting all the assistance they need uh, as they flee from their respective countries? 
Well, the main thing is to ensure that, first of all, they, they are welcomed in any particular country where they are seeking safety. But now that winter is coming, uh, we are certainly worried that uh, there isn't enough support to ensure that these migrants and refugees do not uh, freeze in the cold and that they are looked after in a way that is protecting their dignity. So, so far, we're seeing quite a, a, what we call a relocation exercise where some of the migrants who are in Italy and Greece are being transported to other countries further up in Europe to try and ease the burden on those two countries. We hope this continues and that this is not stopped because of what happened at the weekend. If anything, this is probably the time to show even more solidarity to people fleeing the kind of violence we saw at the weekend. Itai Veri is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration on the line from Geneva in Switzerland talking to Luanda Mawame. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, says it has significantly reduced its reliance on diesel power generation to keep the lights on. The utility also says it has had a positive response from the market on a new international bond to raise cash. ESCOM is scrambling for, to repair its aging power plants and grid. Earlier this year, the utility was forced to impose almost daily power cuts that hurt economic growth. It now says it doesn't expect to implement electricity blackouts until next April. Here's spokesperson Kulu Pasiwe. Uh, generally, from our side, as far as the maintenance is concerned, we have been doing maintenance without load sharing. Today is day 99 where we, uh, we were able to do maintenance without uh, load sharing at all. So the plan from our side is to continue along this path to make sure that we strengthen the system and uh, hopefully in the next two years or so, uh, load sharing will not be part of our vocabulary at all. And on day 99 of no load sharing, I find out that you are asking for a 17% increase in tariffs. That's going to cost me dividends. Well, the 17% tariff increase, basically the context to it is that uh, we as a company, and this is in relation to the, the NARSA regulations, the regulations are saying for an operator like ESCOM, at the end of every financial year, you have to take uh, your annual report back to the regulator so that the regulator can compare what they have uh, given you as in terms of the revenue plus the expenses. For example, every year um, the, the regulator sets a certain amount of money that we need to spend on, uh, on, on procurement of uh, IPPs, plus also diesel and other things that we generally use for our output as a company. So basically they are comparing that and if we have exceeded those amounts, then we have what we call a clawback and this is built part of the um, sort of uh, mechanisms which are built in within the NERSA regulations. And our sort of uh, decision to go back to NERSA with this uh, um, RCA process, which is a regulatory sharing account, is basically just following the precepts of uh, the regulator's own rules to say that we needed to submit our documentation. And when we collate all the figures together, what we will be requesting back from the regulator is 22.8 billion rand. When you take it into percentage terms, it will mean that uh, the electricity will increase by an extra 8%. Just for, for the benefit of our, of our listeners, already in 2012, the regulator has determined that for each one of the five years from 2013 up until 2018, electricity will increase by 8%. So in other words, if we are successful to get this extra um, 22 billion rand, it's equivalent to an extra 8%, which is uh, in total 
um, 8 plus 8, and then it will give us 16%. So, but we will have to wait and see what the regulator will say ultimately. Now, as somebody who's headed to take a few cold showers in the past few months because of the load shedding, I'm happy that you've had 99 days of no load shedding. And what can we attribute this to? One of the first things that happened when Mr. Malaysia joined ESCOM, and he's been very quick to uh, alert everyone that he, he's not working alone, he's working with an executive team. But together as a team then, they had asked some of the engineers to go back to the power stations. And to be honest with you, many engineers actually feel more comfortable or more at home when they are working with their hands and making things happen. So some of them um, were working from the head office here in Megawatt Park, and uh, they felt almost out of place, really, because uh, engineers obviously work with uh, things. And uh, they were very happy to go back to the power stations. And part of the reason why we are seeing stability on, on the system generally, it is mainly because uh, um, some of the senior engineers have gone back to the power stations, working together with a new crop of engineers that are, come from, that are coming from universities and elsewhere. And uh, basically we have uh, um, a good combination of the old and the new, and they are making things happen. And for 99 days after, that's what you're seeing now. Now we are approaching the time of, well, you may call it turn up, festive season, whatever it means to you. Can you guarantee rather that there will be no lights off for the entire festive period? Well, we, we cannot make any guarantees that there will not be load sharing because remember load sharing happens because of a number of things. Sometimes it could be a silo that collapses as it has happened in 2014 and then obviously it takes off offline over 4,000 megawatts and then you are in trouble. But from our side, so far things are going very well and if nothing breaks down, we will continue during this uh, duration of the holiday season without load shedding. What we are trying to, uh, are hoping to achieve again is that um, in the second week of December, when uh, after the 16th of December, many companies, many mines and factories will be closing down for the uh, holidays. We are going to take that opportunity to make sure that we intensify our maintenance program so that when everyone comes back from the, the holidays in the second week of January, we do have many of these machines already and available to meet that demand. That was Kulupasi, the spokesperson at South Africa's Power Utility, ESCOM, talking to Luanda Mawame. 1925 Central African Time, you're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You can find us on email, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. That's where you can send us feedback on any of our stories. African birth registration officials are meeting in Yaoundé to discuss ways of speeding up the process in the continent where over half of the births are not registered, limiting access to basic social services like healthcare and schools. Channel Africa's Mokikinzega reports. Civil Status Registrar Daina Munjowa says he establishes about 60 birth certificates at the Yaoundé 8th Council area in Cameroon's capital Yaoundé. When the child is born, the family has a period of three months for the council to establish him a birth certificate. The second case is for people who did not establish their birth certificate within that period given by the law, three months. They have to go through the courts to obtain a court declaration so as to enable us to establish the birth certificate. We work in collaboration with all the health centers or all the hospitals within the municipalities. So when they come here, we have mechanisms that we refer if they are authentic before we establish. And when they are established, we record them. Now, all certificates that are established within this center, they are all computerized and stored. But they are on the central hospital that refers patients to the birth registration center has an average of 180 births per month. 
Payusnde of Cameroon's Ministry of Basic Education says at least 40% of children enrolling for primary education do not have birth certificates. He says they do not respect the law which warrants children to submit their birth certificates before enrolling in school for fear they may finally be denied education. This situation has been such that some school officials minister the children pending the issuing of this birth certificate. So when the birth certificate is issued later on, sometimes it doesn't conform with the information given by the school official during registration. African birth registration officials meeting in Yaoundé say 50% of births in Africa are not registered. The situation is stubbornly low in French African countries and sub-Saharan Africa with an average of just 39% of newborn children being registered at birth. One more obstacle, they say, is poor communication between villagers and birth registration offices, insufficient sensitization, lack of awareness and administrative delays and inefficiency. Jean-Luc Mastaki, Economic Affairs Officer at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, says laws in such countries are not flexible. The legal system in the English-speaking country is different from the one in our francophone countries. Things move faster and in a pragmatic way, while here the heavy legal system actually has given a lot of power to some institutions belonging to the state which are not actually opening up. Unless you have your birth certificate, you cannot register for some programs. Unless you have your birth certificate, you cannot have a passport. Unless you have your birth certificate, you cannot have access to some public services which are related to the human rights dimension of social development. Another important issue is about security. Within Central and West Africa, where we have a lot of demographic movement, we have to to understand our population, who is who. The African Programme for the Accelerated Improvement of Civil Registration and Vital Statistics is proposing the use of mobile technology in best registration and other technological innovations which can only be part of a solution since only less than 10% of the population actually uses it and it is still very absent in rural areas in Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You still listen to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're going to be with you until 20 hundred hours Central African time this evening. That's about another half an hour to go. Now, South Africa is hosting the 19th annual conference of the African Stock Exchange Association in Sandton, that is north of Johannesburg. The conference focuses on how the association is competing globally for foreign direct investment, attracting capital flows and boosting investor confidence. Industry leaders and specialists from across the continent are discussing diverse economic issues facing Africa. More from Donna Orsthazen, who is the Director for Capital Markets at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The aim of the conference is to, as, as you were mentioning earlier, to further increase the interest in investing in our region, to promote the positive attributes of investing in our region, to 
engage with each other on ways that we can collaborate and move Africa forward. So it's a great event in terms of discussing the pertinent issues that are facing exchanges in our region and across the world, but it's also an opportunity for us to work together to see what more can we be doing to promote Africa and global capital markets. Now, how has the association helped to position Africa as a serious global contender in the financial services and securities exchange sector? Well, as you know, there's been an enormous amount of development in capital markets in our part of the world. There's still a lot more that can happen, but there has been great strides in terms of regulatory reform to allow the creation of exchanges, uh, the implementation of laws and legislation that determines how these uh, instruments can be owned, how they can be traded. There's been an enormous amount of investment in technology uh, in many of the countries in Africa, in trading engines and in hearing and settlement systems. There's been a lot that's been done around risk management and how risks are calculated and how they're mitigated. Uh, and there's been a lot done in terms of promoting our various markets for investors to invest. And, you know, one thing that I do firmly believe in is that any development in any country in Africa has got to be good for all of us because I don't see this as a zero-sum game. If there are positive developments that happen in Nigeria or Morocco or Kenya or Namibia, they should be good for all of us because that will produce more trust, more confidence in our markets and, of course, create yet more investor interest. Now, speaking of uh, investor interest and confidence in the markets, there's a lot of uh, debate going on around the continent, particularly in South Africa, about the kind of policies that the country should be taking forward to be able to alleviate some of the challenges facing the country. What are these doing, especially uh, talking uh, especially about the left policies, what are these doing to the investor confidence and, uh, and attracting investment? Well, you know, the, the, the globe is a very competitive place for investment, and investors uh, look at the relative competitiveness of each market when they invest. They also look at relative risk and relative return. And, you know, notwithstanding the political debate that we have in our country and in many countries in Africa, we see similar debates happening in other countries around the world. And so... Investors take this into consideration, but they look at what this debate might mean in terms of risk, but yet what the market offers in terms of attributes. And we're very fortunate just looking at the JSE and looking at South Africa, for example. South Africa, according to the World Economic Forum, is rated number two in the world in terms of regulation of its securities exchange. Countries like the U.S. and the U.K. are 21 and 24. It's, we were rated number one in the world in terms of the ability to raise equity capital in the local market. We're rated number three in terms of the efficacy of corporate boards, the protection of minority shareholders' rights. Um, and we're also number one in the world in terms of the accounting and reporting standards. So, you know, things like that should give investors great confidence in the investment climate. And as I said, we see other countries in Africa making similar strides in terms of regulation, investment in in state-of-the-art technology, global systems that investors are familiar with. So yes, of course, while investors will look at the political and economic context 
of a market and the ease with which to enter and exit a market, particularly around foreign exchange, they will certainly look at the opportunities for investment, the returns they can earn, and along with the risks they face and how they could mitigate those. But I do believe that the markets in Africa and the diversification strategies of, of investors will still position us well. Let's now talk about the event itself that is happening. Give us the snapshot of the kind of speakers that we are dealing with here. Well, we're very fortunate that we've had the presidents of, or the CEOs of, of several of the exchanges, uh, the CEO of the JSE, the CEO of the Stock Exchange from Nigeria, uh, both spoke today. There's a CEO from the Stock Exchange of Mauritius, CEO from the Stock Exchange of Morocco is here, CEO from the Stock Exchange of Namibia, Mozambique. So I think the continent is very, very well represented with the CEOs of these exchanges. But in addition to that, we've had regulators. We've had people from uh, National Treasury in the United States speak. We've had regulators from other African countries. We've had important buy-side clients and investors from our markets have spoken, uh, and we had, a, we had a panelist earlier today also from a, talking about a, the, the trends in sovereign wealth funds from the Middle East. Uh, we also had an interesting presentation uh, from a consulting firm on trends that we would be seeing across exchanges globally. Uh, so there's been a very, very wide array of presentations that we've had and some very interesting debates. And among those debates was a discussion about how exchanges can be good corporate citizens and how can they contribute to the well-being of the countries and economies in which they operate. So it's been a, a very interesting uh, and diverse range of topics with expert speakers in each one, but also including principles of these exchanges that, uh, that are here to, to give a view. So it's been, I think it's been an excellent agenda. That was Donna Orsazen, the Director for Capital Markets at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, who was on the line with Luanda Mawame earlier today. Despite France being on high alert following terrorist attacks, South Africa will be sending delegates to the COP21 World Conference on Climate Change to be hosted in Paris in the next two weeks. Multiple attacks in the French capital last Friday left 129 people dead and scores injured. France Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius says the conference will continue as planned on November 30, but with a beefed-up security. Hodesanis Tolle reports. By the end of this month, countries of the world will come together to discuss issues around greenhouse gas emissions which are said to be affecting the planet. For two weeks, decision makers, business and NGOs will try to come up with alternatives such as clean energy solutions to help reduce the use of fossil fuels, amongst other things. International Relations Spokesperson Leyshen Munyela says everything will continue as planned and they have confidence in French authorities. We obviously have noted the latest security-related challenges in Paris, but we are confident that the authorities will ensure that the upcoming COP21 is both successful and safe. We think that it's an important platform to discuss important issues that affect all of us globally. Issues of climate change cannot be ignored. South Africa and its neighboring countries are currently faced with drought, and parts of the country is already experiencing water shortages. 
Environmental Affairs Department spokesperson Albimudisa says they are going to be pushing the South African agenda at the conference, not forgetting the entire continent. South Africa will be in Paris for COP21. It's important that uh, the global community recognizes the fact that climate change is the reality and that we should at all times work very hard to ensure that Paris takes us steps closer to address what the international experts have uh, picked up as the possible two degrees increase in terms of temperature. Since 2009, the world has set a goal to keep carbon emissions below two degrees. At Life Africa Project Coordinator Tristan Taylor says we are running out of time. Well, we have very limited time left to reduce global emissions and also South African emissions in order that we keep below two degrees centigrade global warming. If we don't, we will see terrible results, drought, famine, species extinction. Taylor says they'll go to the conference no matter what the circumstances. We were definitely going, I think, in solidarity with anyone around the world, whether they be in Syria or they be in Central African Republic or even France. We will go and do what we think is necessary to help all of the planet. We're definitely going, no doubt about it. Delegates are expected to come up with a binding agreement to cut the missions. Amoritane Sitol in Johannesburg. That's Horesa Nisitole reporting. It's 1940 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumelele Zondi. The producer is Luanda Mawaman. Technical producer is Catherine Malika. Remember that you can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. And it's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Now, in an effort to unite all Africans, the first annual African music concert showcasing more than 20 of the biggest African headliners is set to take place this weekend on Saturday, the 21st of November at the Nasrock Expo Center in Johannesburg. South, South Africa. The concert will feature Nigeria, Giants, Flavor, and Burner Boy, Wizkid, David O, South Africa's Busi, aka Casper Nyovest, and Uhuru, as well as world renowned Soweto Gospel Choir, amongst others. More from concert promoter Lucille Kumbi. The companies that are putting it together, which is MCOM um, Nigeria and the best company in South Africa, which they have a lot of history in dealing with artists as well as music throughout um, Africa. But they have come to do some work out here in South Africa with basically outlining um, doing more digital download work um, with the artists out here in South Africa. And one thing that they picked up is that there has not been a concert um, about, you know, with all these artists together from all the countries of Africa. So we thought, okay, why not put something together and get them all on one stage and then also to highlight African unity. I mean, everybody knows the history that South Africa's had last year, which was not really good for our country. So just for people to to bring people to South Africa as well from a tourism perspective, um, you know, to uplift the brand of South Africa and other countries as well, to just highlight that we are united in music. That is one of the most enjoyable, the most easiest ways to unite people is through music. Now, this will be the inaugural event. Are there plans to make this an annual concert? Um, yeah, we, well, we want to move it throughout Africa. Well, in the plans, we're looking at taking it to Kenya, to Nigeria, Ghana, Tanzania. So it's starting here in South Africa and it's going to travel the continent. Who are some of the artists that are built to perform at this event and how do people go about getting the tickets for the concert? Uh, we've got WizKid, we've got AKA, we've got Casper, DeVito, Uhuru, Runtown, Vanessa B, Victoria Kamani, 
Zelez, Anati, Boosie. Um, we've got R2Bs from Ghana. We've got West Day. We've got Simba Tags coming from Zimbabwe. We've got a long list of 23 artists. That's excluding the DJs, excluding the hosts um, of the show. And if anyone wants to purchase a ticket, you can go on to Compute Tickets and get a ticket from there. It starts from 270. We will be selling tickets at the gate as well. So people will be able to get tickets at the gate. That is African Music Concert promoter Lucille Kumbi on the line with Ntlantla Matlangu. Africa rising through innovative technologies to improve the quality of life of its people. From the 29th of November to the 3rd of December 2015, South Africa's city of gold, Johannesburg, will host the 7th AfroCities Summit. Delegates will have an opportunity to reflect on the challenges that local governments and partner states are faced with, the state of affairs and what steps have been taken to ensure that the objective to build a network of smart cities is realized. Channel Africa will be there bringing you live coverage. The AfroCity Summit is an engagement for Africa's local government authorities, which is organized every three years by the United Cities and Local Governments of Africa, UCLG Africa. This year's edition will be held under the theme, Shaping the Future of Africa with the People. The contribution of African local authorities to Agenda 2063 of the African Union. Smart cities will be one of the subjects explored during the five-day summit. So, join Channel Africa between the 29th of November and the 3rd of December for coverage of AfroCities 2015. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 19.45 Central African Time. Here's Joala Natula with your economic news. Thank you, Spamalele. Good evening. Chinese President Xi Jinping has told G20 leaders in a meeting in Turkey that the world urgently needs to find new sources of economic growth. The Chinese president said the world had experienced a very weak economic recovery and more needed to be done to ensure a new age of global prosperity. The leaders of the world's largest economy said in a statement that they remained committed to the goal of lifting their collective output by a further 2% by 2018, even though growth remains uneven and weaker than expected globally. Car manufacturer BMW says it will invest around $416 billion at its Rosalind plant in Pretoria, South Africa. The investment, one of the biggest in the local automotive industry, will enable the plant to produce the next generation of BMW X3, which will be sold locally and exported to various countries. More than $208 million will be invested in new state-of-the-art facilities. An additional $208 million will be for suppliers, launch costs, and the training of associates. 
Nigeria is standing by a $5.2 billion fine imposed on MTN Group for failing to disconnect unregistered SIM cards, though Monday's payment deadline may lapse while a company appeal is considered. The Nigerian Communications Commission had given Africa's biggest mobile group for phone group until mid until midnight on Monday to pay the penalty that has hammered MTN stock price and prompted the registration of it the resignation, rather, of its chief executive. NCC's spokesperson, Tony Ojobo, said in a statement that the regulator was looking into MTN's plea for leniency, but the fine remained because MTN has admitted to breaking the law. The chief executive officer of South Africa's telecommunications company Telcom says the current economic climate continues to have an impact on the company's growth and this will continue into 2016. Sipo Maseko also says as part of next year's wage negotiations preparations, the company is looking at a number of possible ways to try and improve relations with labor and employees. The company has offered voluntary early retirement and severance packages over three th- to over 3,000 employees. Maseko was speaking at the presentation of the company's interim results in Pretoria today. He says the company posted a profit of $42 million for the six months to September. And finally, the Ivory Coast has recorded consumer price inflation of 2.5% year-on-year in September, up from 1.2% in August. The monthly report showed that food and soft drink prices increased 0.7%, while housing and utility prices jumped 15.2% over the period. Healthcare prices climbed 1.9% and communication costs dropped 0.1%. The economy of the world's top cocoa grower makes around 40% of the eight-nation West African franc currency zone. Taking a look at the financial indicators this hour, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.36 South African Rand, at 10.50 Botswana Pula and at 12 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.92 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,092 and platinum at $866 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $44.93 a barrel. Well, that's all for me for today for Channel Africa I'm Jolani Tulo Here's Mosebude Makura with your sports news Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. Kenya's national football team, Harambe Stars, are traveling to Cape Verde aboard a chartered plane for their 2018 World Cup qualifier return leg set for Tuesday. Players had insisted that they will only travel after their allowances are settled by Football Kenya Federation, as well as the government. The players, led by Captain Victor Wanyama and the team manager, Willis Walula, have threatened not to report to camp and travel to Cape Verde for the World Cup qualifier return leg until they are allowances and air tickets for foreign-based players are fully paid. Captain Victor Wanyama. The players, they have been suffering, but uh, uh, they have just uh, played their part. So I think anyone now can, can understand them. And um, hopefully uh, uh, their matter will be settled uh, come Monday. 
uh, we want we want uh, uh, to to do uh, the best for the country and we say you know it has been it has been there for a long time and you know as players we are just uh, we just had to come up with uh, with our own uh, uh, mental strength and I think we can cope with that now. Still on football news, World Football Governing Body FIFA has turned down a request by Nigeria to, for Tuesday's World Cup qualifier against Swaziland to be moved from Port Harcourt to Abuja. The Nigerian Football Federation demanded the match to be moved to Abuja for logistical reasons, but FIFA said the application was not received within the mandatory 10 days allowed for such a request to happen. Manos Swaziland held a star-studded Nigeria to a goalless draw in the first leg of the 2018 World Cup qualifier fire in Lombambo and the return leg is slated for Tuesday afternoon in Port Harcourt. The overall winners of this match will advance to the group stage of the qualifying series of Russia 2018. On to rugby news, Kenya will accompany South Africa's Springboks to the Rio de Janeiro Olympics in Brazil as the two African representatives in 2016. Kenya picked the qualification ticket after a grilling qualifying campaign in Johannesburg, South Africa, narrowly beating another heavyweight Zimbabwe in the final on Sunday. Francis Mutegi has more. Denis Ombachi popped up with the last-minute try just as Kenya looked dead and buried. With the time on the clock virtually finished, racing 65 meters to score the decisive try as the Shujas edged Zimbabwe 19-17 to win the Africa 7th and with it a claim of Africa's sole birth to the 2016 Rio Olympics. Captain Andrew Amonde scored Kenya's first points, touching down with Eden Aguero converting for a 7-0 lead, but the cheaters were never out of touch taking the game to their more illustrious opponents, scoring two tries and a conversion to lead 12-7 at the break. And finally, in cricket news, Mbappe pulled off a nail-biting three-wicket victory against Bangladesh in the second T20 international to level the two-match series, one all and a car on Sunday. Replying to Bangladesh's 135 for nine, Zimbabwe reached 137 for seven and 19.5 overs to end their 13-match losing streak against the hosts in all-games formats. Bangladesh won the first match of the series by four wickets. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's look about top stories on Africa Digest this hour. Gunmen face off with troops in Burundi. Migrants and refugees are fleeing to Europe come under the spotlight that are fleeing to Europe rather come under the spotlight following the Paris attacks. In economics, Ivory Coast records consumer price inflation of 2.5% year on year in September. And in sports, Athletics Kenya Vice President David Okeo being investigated for misappropriation of funds. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today from myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer.
producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, we're on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero on Twitter channel Africa One. We leave you with Nizalongo Bani by Tandisomazwai. Revolutionaries die And the children forget The ghetto is our first love And our dreams are drenched in gold We don't even cry We don't even cry About it no Children fall